You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I've been away for three weeks. Uh, I was on this thing that uh, we call a vacation. A lot of American workers don't have those anymore, and I recognize that I'm lucky to have them, particularly three-week long ones. And I'm very grateful for them. But because when I go on vacation, we still like the new podcast to come out every week. So we bank some shows and I record shows in advance. So I haven't been able to talk about current events at the top of any of the last three weeks of shows because the shows weren't current because we uh, recorded them in advance, as I said. So I wasn't able to talk about Russia and all the horrible things going on in Russia, the persecution of the LGBT community there. Uh, we, we talked about it before once or twice on the podcast, but everything seemed to come to a head right before I left our vacation. Harvey Firestein wrote this brilliant op-ed in the New York Times calling out Putin and the Russian government and demanding that the world start to pay attention. Activists in Queer Nation in New York and San Francisco and, and me and another guy here in Seattle all called for a boycott of Russian vodka. Learn more about the Russian vodka boycott at dumprussianvodka.com. And I suppose I could talk about that. I could talk about Russia at great length. Uh, I could also talk about efforts to um, oppress the vote to you know the Supreme Court the day before they issued their ruling on DOMA and Prop 8, which were terrific for the gay community. They issued a ruling basically gutting the Voting Rights Act and immediately states where Republicans control all levers of government began instituting all these policies and new laws that had been previously blocked – under the Voting Rights Act, which was gutted by the Supreme Court in a decision where they said racism isn't a problem in America anymore, which is just not true. And the proof was, of course, all these states moved the very next day to enact these laws that would make it more difficult for brown people, black people, poor people, students to vote. And I could rant and rave about that or I could just send you, in addition to dumprussianvodka.com, to 866rvote.org where you can learn more about it. Because what I really want to talk about today is my vacation. And there's a couple of things I just wanted to share with you all about my vacation. Uh, one of which is just it made my head explode and I have to get it off my chest. And the other is slightly political. But here's what made my head explode. It just freaked me out. I had to get it off my chest. Um, the Reichstag. Uh, it is the German parliament building. And the Nazis uh, set it on fire to justify – uh, their coup and their persecution of communists and uh, labor unionists and all of their enemies in the early 30s. Uh, and after German reunification, it was rebuilt and they put this beautiful glass dome on the top that has this walkway that goes all the way around it where you can actually look down into the German parliament. And the metaphor there is, of course, about the transparency of uh, the German government and democracy in the way it ought to be, the way it should work. Uh, and I'd never been to the Reichstag. I've never visited and I never went up in the dome until this trip. Terry said he wanted to go to the Reichstag. So we registered and you have to register. You have to get this letter that you print out, that you bring with you, with your passports, your ID. And it just was kind of tone deaf. Like this is Germany, right? This is the Reichstag. This is, you know, the the thing the Nazis burnt to the ground. So there's this kind of Nazi association with the Reichstag, like it or not. Uh, so we get there and this is what happens. They demand your papers, which never sounds sexy in a German accent, I have to say. When you're like going to France and they ask for your papers, it kind of gives you a little thrill. When the when a German demands your papers, it gives you a chill. And then you're you, and they're nice and you can go through the x-ray machines and you know, it is parliament. They don't want just anybody walking in the door. 
uh, which brings me to what freaked me out and was just so effing tone deaf is you mark, you walk up the steps um, with a – somebody leads you up the steps to these large glass doors and they open and you're in this large crowd of people and they herd you into – this little room, you know, they heard you pass those big doors and there are doors in front of you that are not open and then the doors behind you close and you're suddenly trapped in this airless room because that's where the Germans put you and then you look to your left and there's a German in a glass box who's got his finger over a button that he will at some time push to open the doors in front of you but until that German decides to push that button, you are trapped in that airless room. And you have to trust that they're not going to push, I don't know, the wrong button? Do they have a gas button in case there's a terrorist attack or something and they have to stop you? There's a reason they're like not letting you through right away. There's a reason you're being assessed or something. But just how tone deaf is that? I just think that the Germans should err on the side of not herding you into tiny rooms that you cannot get out of where you are scrutinized by other Germans who are standing in front of a panel of buttons and levers and shit. It just kind of freaked me out. I'm not even Jewish. It freaked me the fuck out. I have to say. You know, I have friends who are Jewish who will not go to Germany. And, and I understand. I really love Germany. I've, I've been to Germany many times. I used to live in Germany. I love Germans. Uh, and I love the country. But I understand. You know, I won't – I still won't drink Coors. I won't go to Cracker Barrel. Uh, they're, they're, you know, there are things that get under your skin and you can never get over it. And the Holocaust is a thing that can really get under your skin. Murdered my whole family. Yeah, that can really get under your skin. And it freaked me out. I couldn't imagine if I was like an Israeli tour group or you know somebody – part of an Israeli tour group or uh, somebody with Jewish family that had been murdered by the Nazis to be at the Reichstag and herded into the little glass room and having to wait there patiently while a German decides which button to push. Anyway, there was that. And this is the other thing that freaked me out. It didn't freak me out. It just made me realize how fucking fucked we are in America and how few people seem to realize how fucking fucked we are. You know, first of all, most Americans do not have paid vacations anymore. Forget health care through your employer. Forget pensions, which have all been destroyed in this country. Uh, many Mar Americans never have any time off at all. Uh, I, I lucked into a stupid gig where I can af afford to go on vacations every once in a while, even afford to go to Europe every once in a while. And for that, I am eternally grateful. Uh, you know, and it, it was an accident that I met somebody starting a newspaper and I said, oh, you should have an advice column. And he asked me to write it and it took off. And now this is my job and it's really crazy. Otherwise, I would be a waiter with no paid vacation, no health insurance uh, and no pension. Uh, but I lucked into this gig, right? And I'm grateful. And just that always weighs on me. You know, I'm going to Europe. I'm going on vacation. I'm getting three weeks of vacation because I'm fancy, you know, and my sister doesn't get that kind of vacation. Most Americans don't get that those kinds of vacations and we're screwed that way. You know, by law, most Europeans get four to six weeks off every year and it makes them better, more rested, more productive and most Americans feel like they've won the lottery when they land a job where they get two weeks of paid vacation every year. We're fucked, right, on that. And, and, and here's the other thing that we're fucked on and most Americans don't seem to realize it. We were in Germany. Uh, we were hanging out with a friend for a week, came to, came to see us. Um, and he's uh, currently – he just took time off his job to, to finish his PhD, which is why I was able to just dink on over to Berlin and hang out with us. And I began to talk to him about, you know, oh, you're taking time off your job for your PhD. And I stupidly as an American said, oh, did you have to take out a loan? student loans to, to, to pay for this while you, you know, finish your PhD to pay your 
tuition and you know your living expenses and everything. And he looked at me like I was crazy and he said, no, no. Um, I, I took a leave of absence from my job and the government is paying me 60 percent of my salary while I finish my PhD. Uh, uh, what? No student loans? And Americans are supposed to – just like my you know, friends who have – get a job with two weeks paid vacation feel like they've won the lottery. Americans are supposed to be very grateful. When we won the lottery. You got a student loan and the interest rate isn't crushing. But Americans are currently struggling under trillions of dollars of debt, student loan debt. People with college degrees, master's degrees, PhDs, they will never get out from under their debt. And in Europe, this guy, the government – because it recognizes that a highly educated population is going to be the benefit of the economy. They're paying our friend 60 percent of his salary to take time off his job and finish his PhD. And we think it's a victory if we can get the government here to pass a law that just brings the interest rate down a couple of points on our student loans. We are so fucked. Healthcare, vacation time, labor unions, student loans. In every way, we are fucked and we're told, oh, you know, we can't do it like Europe. You want to end up like Greece? We're in Germany, which is the strongest and most vibrant economy in Europe, which has a really strong social safety program, which has really great socialized medicine. And they got the Reichstag and the Reichstag's pretty fucked up. They need to work on that. But a lot of everything else that they're doing is really smart. And I think that it would just be terrific if more Americans – would look to what they're doing in Europe and how the culture and the society and the, uh, the system is set up in Europe more to the benefit of all with the rich paying their fair share of taxes, with the government not spending so fucking much money on defense, which leaves money for things like helping people get their educations and providing health care for all and building decent public transportation. Anyway, I was on vacation and I met somebody and found something else out about how fucked we are here that we don't even realize. I didn't even realize. It never occurred to me that a government would pay you to finish your dissertation as opposed to lend you money and then demand it back and garnish your wages and crush you under debt for the rest of your life and consider and call that helping you get your education. Anyway, back from my vacation, feeling very ranty, looking forward to your calls dumprussianvodka.com. Go there to learn about what's going on in Russia. Go there to learn about the boycott of Russian vodka and 866rvote.org. Go there to find out about what's going on and how you can fight efforts in states to disenfranchise brown, black, poor, student, and other voters. Uh, we got to fight. Got to fight that. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. My name is Ethan, and I'm a 21-year-old trans guy from the Midwest. So we were kind of sitting around shooting the shit, and uh, it came up, we were talking about crazy sex things that have happened in the world, and apparently uh, a porn actress had sex with uh, 919 guys in a single day. So apparently that's the world record as of right now. And uh, one of my brothers made the comment that she was a grade A cum dumpster. I, you know, be loving your show, I, I am all about sex positivity. And so I said, you know, let's keep things sex positive, I don't know, you know. Come dumpster, man. I'm not sure how I feel about that term. He is also a fan of your show, and he was like, "Oh no, I think Dan Savage would love the term come dumpster." After all, I use the phrase "grade A come dumpster," so of course it's positive. So we just kind of had a lighthearted debate about that, and we wondered if you would settle it for us. 
I'm not sure qualifying something with grade A automatically makes it a compliment. I've been called a grade A asshole, a grade A motherfucker. You know, I know some grade A Republicans. Just sticking a grade A in front of something does not turn it into something complimentary or necessarily sex positive. You know, cum dumpster is one of those terms that can be empowering in certain circumstances or sex positive I think under certain conditions and usually that would mean you know for it to be sex positive or empowering the person uh, into whom the cum is being dumped would have to self-identify as and be turned on by describing themselves as a cum dumpster and you will in fact see ads, personal ads online from people, uh, almost always gay men, who call themselves cum dumpsters. Uh, I find the phrase a little off-putting because, you know, what do you put in a dumpster? You put garbage in a dumpster and you are saying cum is garbage and I am a garbage can when you describe yourself as a cum dumpster. But a lot of people are aroused by degrading images or thoughts or, you know, aroused by being used sexually in ways that may seem degrading. But if you're aroused by it and if you can harness it, that desire for degradation in a positive way and then you self-identify as a totally sleazy pig cum dumpster, then it's sex positive. I hope you're being healthy and safe uh, as a cum dumpster, although you know, to have semen dumped into you by strangers is not necessarily safe. But uh, yeah, so to answer your question, uh, it depends. Cum dumpster indeed can be sex positive when self-applied but in the way that your friend used it, slapping that label on that porn actress who did that mega, uh, you know, sleeping with a million people videos, uh, I don't think in that context, the way your friend used it, it was necessarily a compliment. It sounded a little bit slut shamey the way your friend used it. But if that actress said, yeah, I was a total cum dumpster in that scene and that really turned me on to like just be a fucking cum dumpster, then it would be – Sex positive and okay. It would be grade A sex positive, in fact. And that's the first question of my post vacation show. And we're just like right into the deep end with the cum dumpstering. Thank you. I knew you wouldn't let me down, callers. You would uh, keep me on my toes. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Dan. I'm a 20 year old straight female calling from Canada. I've been in a long distance relationship with my 24 year old boyfriend for about three months now. In total, we have been together for about 10 months. He has recently moved to the other side of the country for work. Before he moved, our sex life was pretty satisfactory. I have a slightly higher drive than he does, but we had sex around twice a week, and it was very satisfying. Since we have started long distance, he has completely shut me down when I have tried to engage in any type of cyber or phone sex, sexting, and sometimes even just flirting. He is a fairly self-conscious person and has gained a little weight since he last saw me, which he uses as an excuse for why he is uncomfortable being semi-naked or naked on camera with me, even though I couldn't care less about the weight gain. He also suffers from depression, which at different times results in him not having much of a sex drive. Beyond that, the move was stressful for him, so I understand that the stress could contribute to him feeling not so sexy. However, it has been three months now, and I'm getting restless. Since starting the long-distance part of our relationship, we've spent a week together in person. During this time, our sex life was back to normal. In fact, it was a little better than normal. Unfortunately, we have no idea when we'll be seeing each other again since money is tight and neither of us can afford the plane ticket right now. I've brought it up to him a few times and he always says, I'm doing my best or I'll try, but I haven't seen any difference. A couple times he's actually guilted me for flirting with him because he says I make him feel pressured. I'm very frustrated because I want to be with him but I'm a sexual person. 
I'm not single, so I'm not even allowed to flirt with anyone else, but my boyfriend isn't receptive to or reciprocating anything either. I feel like I have no real outlet besides masturbating, and I'm just getting tired of that. I'm afraid that if this continues, I may be tempted to cheat. Any advice on how I might proceed? I really love him, and I want to be with him, but I also want to be active sexually. Thanks, Dan. Bye. You know, back before the internet uh, and Skype and telephones, uh, when people were in a long-distance relationship and they weren't able to meet each other's sexual needs, they weren't able to meet each other's sexual needs. They couldn't jump on Skype and have a wank session together. So one option for you is to pretend like it's 1984 and your boyfriend's away for a while and you're really going to be limited to sending him letters and emails and although emails didn't exist in 1984, but writing him letters and masturbating a lot in his absence and satisfying yourself and taking care of yourself because he's not there to take care of you and the technology isn't there to beam him semi-naked and hard uh, onto your laptop or onto your phone. The other option is to do what – you know, you're 20 years old and you're in what sounds like kind of a mix-matched libido-wise sexual relationship and the sex is merely satisfactory. And so it might be best for the both of you right now just to say, you know, we really like each other but circumstances have pulled us apart for the time being. So we're going to break it off for the time being. We're going to suspend the relationship. We're going to see other people. We're going to stay in touch. Uh, we'll get our needs met elsewhere. We'll bo- we can both date and then when circumstances bring us back together in the same place, if we're both still single, we're both still into it, we're both still into each other, we will resume. We will pick up where we left off and be boyfriend and girlfriend again. But right now, it's just not happening. Right now, circumstances at this stage of life, which is really common for people in their early 20s, pulling us apart. And the struggle to keep us together is more grief and anxiety then it's worth and more grief and anxiety than letting each other go would be because you're just at the beginning of this fight to like keep that sexual connection to expect this guy who barely met your needs sexually when you were together in the same place physically to somehow meet your needs sexually now that you're miles and miles and time zones apart. I think it's better just to accept that you can't be together right now. So why not not be together right now? And both of you get out there and explore a bit sexually. Maybe he'll learn more about sex and be more into it and better at it if he has some more experiences with other people. Maybe he'll come to appreciate who you are sexually uh, to him and just sexually generally if he has some experiences with other women. Maybe you'll come to a better appreciation of who he is sexually and you'll be better able to meet each other's sexual needs if you guys have some experiences dating and mating uh, with others during this time that you are not together. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 37-year-old straight male with a question for you. It's not really about me, but kind of a theoretical question, I guess. I had a roommate about a year ago, and after he moved in, he disclosed to me that he was positive. You know, we had conversations about this, and I, I asked him, like, he was young, like 25, and he found out and had changed his life, obviously. And, uh, you know, I asked him about dating and so forth and how that worked out, and he kind of intimated that, he had really no issues and a lot of girls didn't care. And I was kind of surprised to find this out. Long story short, uh, you know, he's had several partners and had claimed that they were all aware that he was very open with the status. He did not keep it a secret. Later on, I was talking to a friend, a different friend, and she had found out about this and was shocked. She was like, I know there's no way these girls would have known. Well, I suggested to her that she asked them kind of, you know, covertly, like, 
if they knew about his status and that you just knew about it from an undisclosed friend. And, and she did, and they did know he had told them. It's not like they, you know, were in a committed relationship. It's down here, people like to use the term polyamory, which I kind of think the young folks like to use as a, a term to cover up promiscuity, which is what it really is because nobody's in committed relationships. It's all just kind of a free-for-all. But these girls are like knowingly having sex with a positive person, and I'm sure they're not telling their other partners, like, oh, I just had sex with a positive person, but it's okay because we use a condom or whatever. And so I know your answer would be like, this is why you have to always use condoms and protect yourself. That makes sense. I totally get that. But um, when I've had this conversation with other friends of mine or like one of them who's a, a counselor, um, <laughs> everybody's like, wow, this is like wrong. Your argument seems to be just to cut you off because you do go on. Uh, and I, ha I share that trait. So um, pot kettle moment there. Uh, your argument seems to be that because he's HIV positive, he shouldn't be sleeping with people at all, that he should be celibate or in a committed relationship with just one person. That there's something terribly wrong here that someone who is pause is disclosing and using protection uh, with partners and then those partners might then have other partners and do they then have to disclose and on and on and on. Um, you know, that's really kind of rank uh, HIV phobia there. Um, people who are most infectious, people that others are at most risk from are not people who are HIV positive, who are on drugs and treatment, who may have undetectable viral loads or will have undetectable viral loads if they're in treatment um, and are disclosing and using condoms. Those people – present almost zero risk. This guy presents almost zero risk of transmission to his sex partners. The people that everyone should be concerned about are people who do not believe they are positive, people who tell you that they are negative who are positive. A great many people who are pos do not know they are pos. A great many people who are walking around who believe that they are negative are actually positive and they are not using protection and they are much more infectious because their viral loads are usually out of control. So it's not pause people in treatment who are disclosing and using condoms and doing everything right that you should be stigmatizing and that you should fear. It's negative people or people who think that they're negative who are not, who are not using protection and not disclosing because they don't know they're positive because they haven't been tested or haven't been tested recently enough to detect a new infection that you should be afraid of. This guy you should be praising despite the fact that he has multiple partners, which is not a sin. This guy – deserves credit and praise for the way he's conducting himself sexually. And so do the women uh, with whom he is sleeping. So in conclusion, pot kettle, you do go on, I do go on, your fears are misplaced and your stigmatizing right now is wholly misplaced. This guy is doing everything right. The people with whom he is sleeping are doing everything right. There is not a problem here. And you know what? At the end of the day, everything that's happening here, none of it is any of your fucking business. I do believe in sort of community norms and community standards and people need to be responsible for each other and, and hold each other accountable. If I had a friend who was HIV positive and I did back in the bad old days, a friend who was HIV positive who was being unsafe and putting others at risk, I would get in that guy's face. I did get in the faces of guys like that in the 80s and 90s. So I'm with you. Like there have to be community standards, community norms. But you're really off base with this. This guy is a good guy. He's a pause guy who's doing everything Right, and you should pat him on the back the next time you see him, and you should buy him a drink and apologize to him. Hi, Dan, and the tech savvy at Rescues. Um, I just had something 
peculiar happened to me. I'm a straight girl from calling from the Northwest, and I was just with my boyfriend, and we were flown around, and then uh, when I was going down on him, we both were a little inebriated, and I look, I look up, and his eyes are really big, and I start to laugh a little. I've never seen this expression on his face before. He wasn't too responsive, and then I, I just did it again, and then he flipped over immediately and put it a, put a halt to the whole night. And I was just kind of like, okay, whatever, let's roll with punches. And then the next day, uh, I go to work early. He sends me a text that says, what you did last night laughing at me was a real big turnoff. I don't think I'm sexually attracted to you anymore, and I think it's time for a break. Heeding your really great communication and rationale skills, I talked to him and had him explain it, and he still isn't. He said it'll be a while before he can find me attractive again. And go have sex. I've never had this happen to me before, where someone takes one of their insecurities, flips it around, and labels it as something I did wrong, and how I was insecure, and how I'm just unattractive. Anyways, what is your take on this, and how should I respond? DTMFA, or is there some more communication and new thinking processes that I could employ? So are you still dating uh, Senior Sensitivo? <laughs> uh, I am. Did you guys patch it up? Did you work it out? We didn't talk about it all day, and I was really upset about it. And um, I was just, this is what happened a couple times, and so I said, you know, I'm just done with it. You blew it. Fuck off, basically. I, I need someone that can use their mouth. And he was really upset. He was just like, I'm sorry, I apologize. Wait, wait, what do you mean you need to, wait, I'm confused. You told him you need someone who can use his mouth because why? Now, what was the logic there? Uh, where, where I'm at is you gave him a blowjob. You looked up. He was making a weird face. You got the giggles during sex, which is totally normal and is something that sometimes happens. That tweaked an insecurity of his that you were not aware of. You stepped on a landmine that you didn't know was there. And he got all freaked out and blamed you for it. Yeah, and I'm still upset whenever I hear you say that back to me. I'm like, why the fuck did I take him back? That is insane, but <laughs> I didn't know if you had advice. I just, I don't know if I should use this as a red flag or if I should just say, give him more chances to pull him through the mud and the muck of being a stereotypical heterosexual man that doesn't know his own feelings. Oh. And he said to me before, I, it's easier for me to break up with you or to you know, just not talk about it and push you away than to process them and explain them to you. Well, you got to make him process and explain. He's got to talk. I wouldn't dump him over this though. You know, sex, you know, being with someone, being sexual with someone does require you to make yourself vulnerable to that person. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you had a reaction, a, a natural sort of reaction in the moment. And he had a reaction to your reaction in the moment that was, uh, you know that that betrayed his insecurities. He's not somebody who uh, can be laughed at during sex. There's something about letting his guard down, being vulnerable, being sexual with you that he doesn't want to feel ridiculous. And what he he needs to get over and get past that because sex is ridiculous. We look ridiculous in pursuit of it. Yeah. You know, we look certainly look ridiculous while we're doing it, and we usually feel ridiculous for a little bit afterwards until we're horny again and then the whole game starts over again. So he needs to reconcile himself to that, that sometimes shit happens during sex. 
where you have a laugh and, you know, what he should have done was look down and you go, what's so funny? And he said, you're just crazy. Look, your eyes looked really crazy for a second. And then he should have looked at you and said, ooh, boogie boogie eyes. Now keep sucking my dick and laughed it off. You know, once mm-hmm. he once he verified that you weren't laughing at him, if you took his dick out of your mouth and said, I'm laughing because your dick is wholly inadequate and I am unsatisfied in this relationship, <laughs> that would be one thing. But you had a funny yeah. look on your face and it made me laugh. That's not something that he should have this crazy ass meltdown over. And he needs to get on top of those insecurities. And usually it takes being in a relationship with someone who encourages you to get over those insecurities that gets you over those insecurities. So I don't think you should dump him and run. But I think you should draw a line and hold him to it, hold him to a higher standard. Like people sometimes laugh during sex. You're going to laugh at me sometime during sex. I'm going to do something weird. You're going to see me in a weird position. I'm going to have a weird look on my face. Maybe you'll blow a load on my face and it will like suddenly look like a smiley face come pattern and you'll get the giggles. It happens. OK? Can we be over it? And say that to him. And if he can't accept that, then break up with him. Or if it keeps happening, break up with him. Have you blown him since? I actually, I am from Kentucky, and so I flew back home for a little while, and we've spent some time apart, and uh, he took me to the airport, and was really affectionate, and he's like, I'm going to miss you, and I can't wait for you to get back, and uh, I guess we're just still new, we've only been dating for nine, ten months, and we're still in our, you're an individual, I'm an individual, and we're still too embarrassed, I think, to say, I want to spend time with you, and I will miss you, and I care about you. Because we are still so hard-nosed and wanting to prove to each other that we're fine by on our own and that we don't need each other's support, but we enjoy it. Uh-huh. And so that's, since we don't have that, we're not over that cliff yet of saying, you know, we want to be somewhat responsible to one another. I'm kind of like, is it worth it? Is it worth pulling him through his emotions and making him talk about it? And I guess after hearing you, it's kind of like, if I don't do it, then he will just be the knuckle-dragging caveman. <laughs> You're like, well, was yesterday sometimes. He, so. he, he's not a fixer-upper for you. You don't have to put a new roof on him. If you're not interested in him, you don't, have to, you don't have to repair him because if you don't, the next girl will have to. Just ask yourself, do you want to be with him? Do you want to uh, date him? And if you do, this is a problem that isn't, should not be a deal-breaker. This one like weird blow-up about this insecurity – that shit happens in relationships and that tends yeah. to happen early in relationships where you step on that landmine you didn't know it was there, you know, where you touch, okay. touch someone in a way that they cannot or bear to be touched, right? And they kind of jerk right. away from you in shock because no one's ever touched them that way before. They really don't like to have that part of their body touched. They have some weird sort of uh, triggery reaction to that particular kind of touch and you don't know until you accidentally touch them that wrong way and then you know not to touch them that wrong way or you know to talk about it and you touched right. him – the wrong way with a giggle and now you know that that's something you need to be conscious of but that he needs to work on and, and, and that's a sort of like sex problem that comes up during sex that shouldn't be a disqualifier. So, mm-hmm. so you need to set that aside. This isn't a reason to break up with him. You just need to ask yourself and, – and fixing this in him is not a reason to stay with him. You just need to ask yourself, do you want to be with this guy? If you want to be with this guy, then be with him. God, it sounds much easier whenever you say it. <laughs> and then draw a line in the sand and say, you know what? Sometimes people get the giggles during sex. Grow up. It's part of sex. It happens. Ask everybody. Yep. Ask anybody you know who's had sex more than a handful of times or has had a few relationships. Yeah. People get the giggles. They edited it out of porn. Yeah. So you probably didn't see much of it when you were jerking off to porn for 10 years before you met me. They don't keep the giggles in the porn tapes, but they're in there. They're on the editing room floor. 
So I'm mm-hmm. not, you, you have to tell them, you can't penalize me for this emotionally and you need to get over it. And someday you're going to do it to me right. and I won't freak out at you. And that's, that's our deal. That's the deal we'll make with each other. And when I say you'll do it to me, I don't mean he'll do exactly the same thing. He'll be giving you a blowjob, sucking your big fat dick and then get the giggles because you have to look on your face. But he'll do something that in the moment tweaks your insecurities about sex, your insecurities about your body or about your performance. And it will be unintentional on his part. And then this will all come up again for you. Like You need to remember at that point when he trips that wire because you have them too. You have those landmines too. At that point when he trips it accidentally, you need to remember that you have to be as gracious – uh, as you would have liked him to have been in that moment. And then you can rub his nose in how much better your reaction was. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Good thank luck. you so much, Dan. I've been rolling around with this for a while, so thank you so much. You're welcome. Good luck. Hi. I'm a 22-year-old female in college who is straight. I have been using OkCupid for a long time. A long time, I guess, being two years, and I haven't found anyone yet. Am I doing something wrong? I mean, I feel like I'm putting myself out there. I'm messaging other men. I put pictures that are honest, but also flattering. Does it, I don't know, does this, like, mean that there's something wrong with me? I don't know. Probably not. Probably just being really insecure, but I'd love your opinion on web dating. Joining me by phone from New York City is Christian Rudder. He is the president and co-founder of OKCupid, which is the dating site that almost all of my friends, particularly my straight friends, love and use and swear by. Uh, So without having seen this woman's ad on OKCupid on your site, can you please tell us everything she's doing wrong and why she hasn't found a boyfriend yet? (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, obviously your photo, I I mean, namely how uh, how hot you are uh, really affects how your online dating experience goes. Um, certainly at like the superficial level. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I guess I wrote down a couple questions when I first heard the call. And like, I think the fundamental question is where is the bottleneck? I can't tell from her call is it that she's getting no dates at all or that she doesn't like the guys when she dates them. So she's not finding a, a kind of permanent boyfriend or like people never even replying to her messages. And I guess I can kind of go through those cases since we're both sort of operating in the dark here. Since we don't have the specifics of her case, just generally, what is it that people do wrong that leads to them not getting a lot of response? Well, I mean, I guess it's, it's that you're, I mean, that's sort of a, sounds tautological, but it means that you're just like writing people that don't like you, which is kind of like a mistake and maybe you're on self-understanding. I, I, I don't know. That's weird because the, the average reply rate for women is like 40% or something. So it's, it's, it's pretty high. And if, if you're a woman and, and Guys aren't writing you back. I guess that means a couple things. But it means you're very unattractive. So oh let's, let's just assume that. Don't, hey, you <laughs> well, know, this, I mean, is like, a, this is the savage love cast. You don't have to sugarcoat things. Just say it. Right. Well, I mean, that's, look, I look at this stuff all day. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, way be, I'm way beyond uh, the sugarcoat. I'm to the hard center of the candy at this point. The, uh, the, the, you're either very unattractive, but even very unattractive women get replies and messages because we kind of orient the site. The site realizes that you're attractive or, or that you're unattractive and kind of starts to tailor who it suggests mm-hmm. based on that. So we, if you're ugly, we show you lovely people, uglier people, and those people are going to be more likely to respond to you. You know, no, uh, you know, we call them unconventionally attractive. We don't use, Un- we, we don't use the <laughs> U word anymore, but go okay. ahead. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Unconventionally attractive. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll call them in the lower deciles. Just call the them, lower rating call them UAs. 
UA, okay, that's fine. So if you're UA, we, start, we show you do other UAs or people that we think might appreciate you. Let me say that. But then, you know, assuming that you're just, you know, median attractive level, which is what we can assume, I guess, not knowing anything else about this lady, she might be writing guys who are just way above her. Um, obviously, it's, it's really the differential that matters, mm-hmm. not necessarily your absolute attractiveness. So if, you, if you're, uh, say, a 5 out of 10 and you're writing a 10, well, that's like a negative 5 deficit there. And that, that that's about the same as if you were a 2 and writing a 7 or, or however you want to scale it, you know? Mm-hmm. So she might just be going out of her league. And it's hard for me to believe that no one writes her back because that's, it's just so rare uh, for, for, for a straight woman. Like, guys get so few unsolicited messages that, like, that you know, like I said, it's like 40, 40%. And for a 20-year-old, mm-hmm. then that's like, I mean, her reply rate should be like 55%. So it might be that she's being extremely picky, which you can't blame her for, but at the same time, she's got to understand that that's playing into this whole thing. I don't know. My guess is that she's either, that one of three things are happening. She's, she's uh, UA and, 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 or, and or is messaging people way out of her league uh, and or is maybe being too harsh on how she sells in Or is a terrible writer. I guess that's another thing. That can turn people off. If you're a terrible writer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, if, if your picture isn't um, conventionally attractive, isn't CA, uh, then, uh, <laughs> then, then, you know, what you, your words have to do extra work, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to have the, the classic, like, you know, nice personality or whatever, good personality, whatever you want to call it. So, um, and obviously online, the only way to do that is to the way you write. And so, is it, are you, should you use a lot of emoticons or no emoticons? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think you do not use very many emoticons. I think I, I, I can keep it. Um, and also, I, I don't really know where she's writing from. That, that's actually important information because dating sites, all dating sites, but okay, keep it especially work better in big cities, just period, because mm-hmm. it's like a critical mass type thing. Like, it doesn't, the effectiveness of the thing doesn't scale linearly with the number of people. It scales like quadratically basically mm-hmm. because you need all the connections. Like every person you add like doubles the number of connections sort of, or increases, sorry, increases the number of connections. So like, you know, if she's in a really small town, especially a college town um, where it's like counties and other people at her school, then, then it's kind of, it just, there might just be some pickings just because of where she is. That was what I thought, actually. I wondered if she was, yeah. in, you know, if she's going to NYU versus going to, you know, Bloomington University and Bloomington, Indiana, right. she might have a very different experience just because there isn't that critical mass of people on the ground that you yeah. don't know that, that you could possibly date. Um, I, I've heard, right. one of the things I've heard and reading your site, and, and I do read your blog, uh, the blog at OKCupid, which is brilliant, and the analytics you guys do with the data you generate is really smart, and everyone who's interested in sex and dating should be reading OKCupid's blog, um, is that sometimes pictures are a real problem, not because they make you uh, look less attractive than you are, but because they make you look more attractive than you are, that you want representative, flattering, but very representative photographs. People don't want to feel misled. When That's they, a great point. When they meet yeah. you or when they, they hear about you, if you're, you know, if you've got some meat on your bones and there are people who, out there who like people of all sorts of different shapes and sizes, of course. if you've got yep. some meat on your bones, show that meat and you'll attract somebody who's into that meat. If you hide that meat and then you meet somebody or you send additional pictures, you're going to turn that person off because they obviously weren't looking for meat if your photo made you look like skin and bones. Right, exactly. I, that's a, I make that point all the time. In fact, I just – an hour ago, I got off the phone with a journalist who was asking me about, well, wouldn't I do better if I got my friend's picture? I guess her friend was more attractive than she was or whatever, and used my friend's picture. And I was like, why would you do that? Like, they wouldn't even know who you were when you sat down at the cafe. Or, you know what I mean? Like, like uh, you, it, and online dating is like, 
unlike YouTube comments or Reddit even or anything, like it's like fact-checked in person. You're supposed to meet them in person, you know? Right. So, like, Eventually the face-to-face encounter yeah. is coming and you're just – you you may wind up having more face-to-face encounters but more scalding rejections. Oh, God. Yeah. No, it's terrible. Right. Exactly. And it's a fine line. Like, look, you want to put yourself in the best possible light in order to maximize – the number of people who are interested sort of at the very top of the, of the funnel, so to speak. But like, yeah, you, when you show up and sit down in person, they need to, you need to be what they want you to be too. Right. Like, yeah. So it, it's, just, I mean, my analogy, I'm like five ten or whatever, and I could probably get away with five eleven, but I definitely could not get away with like six, two or six, three. And if I put that on my profile, look, yeah, I would get a lot more responses and I would probably get more responses from hotter girls or whatever, but it would just be a shit show. And I showed up in, <laughs> in, in whatever. Like, in your, you can't explain that in your high you know? heels. But, um, but right, so, exactly. Okay, yeah. just so to summarize, she needs to be more attractive. That helps, yeah. That's, or that's she, number, number one on my dating advice. <laughs> she needs to lower her standards. Mm-hmm. She needs to be messaging guys who are in her league, and she needs to be kind of very realistic about that, that self-assessment. Sure. Right? She needs to respond yeah. to the guys who are responding to her, and yeah. she needs to be in a bigger city. That's That's your <laughs> advice. Yeah, that, those things all help. And, and I guess it, it – you know, be realistic with yourself. That goes into like, are you being too picky? What is my league? Am I messaging guys or women or whoever that's, that's way above me? Um, and also, yeah, like you said, there's a photo thing. Like you can't just sit there and pretend to be somebody. It, it's fire it backfires. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But yeah, be hotter, live in a bigger city. Uh, and <laughs> I think that's, that's, that's my uh, easily applied online dating advice. And don't misrepresent yourself because that date of reckoning is coming. You're going to have to go to dinner. You're going to have to sit across from that person. You have to go have drinks and they're going to meet the person you really are. And you need to have photographs that introduce them to that person before that first meeting. Yeah, exactly. It would just be that I can't even imagine the horror and uncomfortableness that would be there at that table with you guys if you, you know, terribly misrepresented yourself. So are you single? No, I'm married. Okay. Have you ever, how long have you been married? I've been married since 2006. And did you meet your partner through online dating? I did not. I have never been on an online date in my life. Neither <laughs> have any of the other three founders, so I can't keep it for that Wow. <laughs> but, but you're responsible. Okay, Cupid gets a lot of people laid. It does. I know, which is great. But, and, you, uh, and you guys yeah, are so smart just, about analyzing data. Do you have a percentage of blowjobs that you can claim credit for in any given weekend in America? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's funny. I guess eHarmony does their like marriage study every year. We should do the BJ study. Um, uh, I don't know. Probably a lot, actually. I don't know. <laughs> Christian Rutter, president and co-founder of OKCupid, okay getting people laid in America and all over the world since 2004. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. Uh, it's my pleasure, Dan. Hey, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old female listener from Texas, and I've always identified as pansexual for as long as I can remember because I've always been interested in members of both genders as well as transgendered and genderqueer partners. But in the last few years, I've begun to wonder where I fit in on the sexuality spectrum. I feel like I identify a lot more with gay men, particularly the flamboyant and effeminate gay men, um, more than women. And even though I've had sex with women and I enjoy it and I've had relationships with women, I don't really find very much in the lesbian culture that I identify with. Um, however, since I've entered my 20s, I found myself very attracted to gay men, particularly drag queens, in a very sexual way. 
Um, I don't consider it a fetish. It's just something I really enjoy. But like when I watch pornography, it's usually gay men or, you know, a cross-dresser and a gay man or something like that. And I find myself wishing that I was a gay man so that I could have that kind of relationship with another man. Um, and since most of my friends are identify as gay or transgendered, people tend to label me as a fag hag without realizing that I'm not hanging out with them because they're my gay friends, but because I feel more kinship with them than I do with people outside of the gay culture and the gay community. I just, I feel like a Nelly gay man that's trapped in a woman's body. Do you have any advice for me on coming to terms with this? And how can I go about trying to make it clear that I'm actually looking to develop a long-term relationship with someone who is more feminine, I guess, or transgendered, and I'm not just getting on the bandwagon um, right now with everybody watching, like, RuPaul's Drag Race, and everybody wants to hang out with drag queens, and I just honestly feel like they're kind of my people, even though they're obviously not. So I just wonder if you had any advice for me and any insight on this. Some folks will probably tell you that you yourself may be a trans man if you really feel like a gay man trapped in a woman's body. There are a lot of trans men out there who are, you know, transitioned from female to male who are gay identified and chasing after gay guys and meeting with more success these days romantically. Uh, the letters from trans men who were interested in other men uh, in gay men 10 years ago were a lot more depressing and usually had less happy endings in the letters I get today from trans men who are getting a better reception in the gay community as more people become aware of trans stuff. Anyway, so maybe you're a trans man, but it doesn't sound you don't bring that up. You don't say you don't express any desire to transition yourself or to be male identified or any sense that you are a man actually and that you would like to transition. Sounds like you're just a woman who is into faggy guys. Not all faggy guys are 100% fag. There are by sometimes gay identified by guys out there who might be open to a relationship with you. And there are certainly – if you look around any large group of gay men, you will meet uh, some dykes who are more in tune and tapped into gay culture and sort of the gay male vibe and dynamic than they are to lesbian culture. You're not some very special snowflake. There are other women, lesbian women or bi women out there like you in the world and all you have to do to meet them is continue to hang out with large groups of gay men and you will meet these these honorary fags. Uh, they are sometimes called. I have heard them called. I've called them myself. Uh, and so you have dating options of other women like you but also in any like large gay community, you'll meet some guys who are bi, who may be drag queens, who may be very effeminate. There are really effeminate straight guys out there. They write me and tell me how hard it is for them to get laid, how hard it is for them to convince straight women that they are not gay because they are just effeminate. And so they have dating frustrations of their own and you would be Yahtzee for them because what is a problem for other women, for these boys, for you would be – the fucking brass ring, what you were looking for, what you were after, something you would really appreciate and treasure about them. So no pity party for you. Don't sit around moping. There are other women out there like you and there are guys, faggy guys, effeminate guys, gay identified bi guys out there that would jump on you. Just keep putting yourself out there. Keep meeting people and stay open to possibility and you will find your place. You will find your man. Last week while I was on vacation, the International Academy of Sex Research held their annual convention in Chicago, which is you know one of the uh, big associations for sex researchers out there. And they all got together in Chicago and they talked about all of their studies. And you know I bring a lot of researchers on the show uh, when we want to talk about stuff to talk about the studies that they're doing, what they're learning about sex, what we know now about sex. And sometimes listeners are uh, shocked to find out exactly how many people are out there uh, doing sex research. 
But the fact is there are more people out there doing sex research than we've been able to have on the show to talk about their sex research, which is why this week we are inaugurating a new regular segment on the program, which is called What Do You Got?, where we invite a sex researcher on to talk about the results of a new study that they've released that might be interesting uh, to Savage Lovecast listeners. And joining us this week to inaugurate What Do You Got? is Dr. Joy Swan, Associate Professor at Woodbury University and the lead researcher on a new study called Is Monogamy a Protective Fallacy, Sexual versus Emotional Exclusivity and the Implication for Sexual Health Risk? Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Swan. What a mouthful. Thank you, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you got? What did your study uh, uncover? So if I go back to the beginning, I've been doing HIV risk reduction research since the early 90s. And back then we found, even among high school students, that as soon as they call their relationship monogamous, they stop using condoms. Um, This has been a consistent finding over the past 20 years that people feel that monogamy incurs a safe sexual environment Um, where there is no longer risk because, of course, love is such a great barrier to things like HIV and STIs. There's a lot of HIV education materials out there that say you have to use condoms until you're in a monogamous, sexually exclusive, committed relationship. So that notion isn't one that just sort of popped into the heads of high school students and college students and gay men and straight people everywhere. That was promoted, that monogamy is safety. It actually is one of the three primary promotion strategies um, for reducing your risk. And even the Centers for Disease Control um, has advocated having sex only in a monogamous relationship as a way to reduce your risk of HIV infection. But what we tend to find, and, and even if, 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 if high school students in as little as three months will define a relationship as monogamous and then forego condom use because, hey, I'm in a monogamous relationship, we can kind of look at the, the, the probability of a, of a high school student being in a single, mutually exclusive, monogamous relationship for the rest of their life is Zero. pretty infinitesimal. You know, <laughs> probably about up there with my probability of voting for a Tea Party candidate. Yeah, okay? let's, just, let's just call it zero. Right. So at best, what people are defining as monogamy is this idea of serial monogamy, right? 86% of college students define their relationship as monogamous. Next year, their next relationship will be monogamous as well. And so over time, serial monogamy is just the same as having multiple partners. It's mm-hmm. just over a greater amount of time. And again, just calling it monogamous decreases condom use. But what we're tending to find now is that even that is overstating the case, that serial monogamy isn't really what's happening, that infidelity within self-defined monogamous relationships for many populations is very high. Among young adults across all the research the average is about 33% report infidelity in their monogamous relationships. So if people are defining their relationships as monogamous, even when they're not, and then foregoing condom use, now we've got a problem. So my question and what my study that we're talking about today addressed is how can people define a relationship as monogamous when it's clearly not and then use that perceived safety of monogamy to forego condom use? And so there was a study done in 2010. It was a qualitative study of gay men who were in self-defined monogamous relationships and yet were having sex outside those relationships, unbeknownst to their partners. Hmm. And what that study found is that a majority of these men had redefined monogamy to only include the emotional attachment they had for their partner, not sexual fidelity. Mm -hmm. And so they used this idea that 
that they were still in a monogamous relationship because they didn't breach their emotional attachment to their partner. Uh-huh. So what Which, that's, a, that's something we talk about on the show a lot, sexual, uh, you know, sexual monogamy versus uh, emotional monogamy, sexual exclusivity mm-hmm. versus you know, emotional exclusivity. But your study found that people who mix that up then give themselves license to not use condoms with their partner and ultimately could end up exposing their partner. Right. And so what we did is we wanted to empirically establish that, in fact, this, this idea, this, this emotional monogamy is something that people are using. And so we just created these infidelity vignettes. And we had people say, hey, imagine you're in a monogamous relationship and read this vignette that says you commit, commit an act of infidelity against your partner. Now is your relationship still monogamous? And for half the people, they get a vignette that just doesn't say anything about their emotional attachment to their primary partner. And half of them get the exact same infidelity vignette, but we just add one little word or two little words that cue them to their emotional attachment. So, for example, there's a, we have a one-night stand vignette, and it says, you meet an attractive law student named Chris, and the two of you really hit it off, and you end up having sex. And afterwards, you confess to Chris that you're involved in a relationship, and because you don't want your partner to find out, you never see Chris again. The other half of the people get the exact same vignette, right? You meet an attractive law student named Chris, the two of you hit it off, you have sex, but afterwards, you confess to Chris you're involved in a relationship, and because you love your partner, you never see Chris again. Mm-hmm. That's the only difference, that one word, love. And what we found is that people who got the vignette that cued them to their emotional attachment said, yes, my relationship is still monogamous to a greater degree than people who didn't get that cue. Okay, so what's the, what are the implications here then for uh, HIV prevention, for sex education? What do people need to what, – what's the takeaway here? What should people know, do, think, and how should they act knowing this about – monogamy and monogamous and the the protective fallacy that labeling a relationship monogamous creates. Right. Uh, Ultimately, then, the implication is that if individuals define a relationship as monogamous, even when it's not, and then use the perceived safety of monogamy to forego condom use, monogamy could actually increase an individual's risk of HIV infection. And it could, perhaps, then be a risk factor. You had say, stated on the show, I think, a week or two ago, and you're right, that the, the research finds that the majority of gay men and heterosexual women who contract HIV are infected by a primary partner. And so one of the things we've got to address as a society and as researchers is that sex isn't just a physical act. It's a social uh, uh, act. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we have to address the idea that using a condom in an ongoing relationship um, implies distrust of one's partner, not commit, you know, not being committed to the relationship. Um, you know that that using not using a condom is an indicator of your commitment to or love of your partner. I mean, people really seem to have obscured the line between trusting their partners emotionally and trusting that they wouldn't affect them with an STI, right. something over which. Trust has no control. So should the advice be condoms forever, even in the context of what you believe to be a monogamous relationship? You can never get away from condoms? Well, ideally, the answer is is yes. I mean, condoms really are our best protective factor. They protect against everything we're trying to protect, which is usually pregnancy, STIs, HIV, Mm -hmm. everything. 
And this idea that, you know, I'm sure you know there was a study that came out, a really large study that came out uh, at the beginning of this year that found no difference in pleasure with people who use condoms and uh, don't use condoms, Um, and that really there was no difference in in ability to maintain erection and people feeling all that. And so that's the re-education we have to go through. Okay. Well, the the condom code, as it was called in Gayland, kind of fell apart. People don't want to use condoms and tend not to use condoms and to find any out to get away from condoms. Uh, You know, I'm in a long-term committed, not monogamous relationship and I don't use condoms with my partner. Are we doing it it wrong? Listen, everything in life is a risk and you have to weigh the risks from the benefits. Mm -hmm. I'm in a very long-term married relationship and always use condoms. Still? So, not anymore. <laughs> I don't use them anymore. One of our factors is that I don't have pregnancy risks anymore. So, <laughs> But I think what, it, 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 listen, as a researcher, I have to tell you, you need to use condoms. That right. is the way to protect. That is the... Okay, well, as a sex advice professional, that's what I'm supposed to say. You have to use right. condoms, right? That's but everybody said that and nobody, you know, and people generally don't and, and don't want to. People didn't use, you know, they didn't use dental dams for cunnilingus. They didn't use condoms for oral. Uh, and people find a way to justify not using condoms for intercourse anymore. And I think just saying to people... If you're in a long-term monogamous relationship, here are the stats. A lot of infections occur in that monogamous relationship. People are going to engage in a little magical thinking and, you know, rationalize, uh, you know, a scenario in which they couldn't be infected in their monogamous relationship because their monogamous relationship is different. I agree with you 100 percent. 100 percent. You're right. That it's dangerous. The, The conflation of monogamy with safety is dangerous because people cheat. That comes up on the show all the effing time. People cheat. Things happen. And rather than advising people to use condoms in their long-term monogamous relationships, would it be a better strategy to advise people to make an agreement in those long-term monogamous relationships in which they are not using protection with each other anymore? That that infidelity that sometimes happens, that mm-hmm. hot law student Chris, that that is not a reason to break up if your partner immediately discloses and you can go back to condoms and test and wait and then resume non-protected sex after a few months of testing to make sure that Chris didn't infect you. That, that, that maybe the more realistic approach is the one that still empowers and enables people to, to, to get to non-condom sex. But the standard can't be, you know, you're in a monogamous relationship and neither of you are ever going to sleep with anybody ever again, so you're safe. Maybe the standard has to be you're in a monogamous relationship. That confers a certain degree of safety so long as it's monogamous and to make sure, you know, that the safety, which should be paramount, is always at the forefront, you can't break up over the routine infidelity so long as it is disclosed that you can take steps to maintain your safety. You can take proactive steps. Is that what we should be telling people? Because I don't think telling people, you know, you've been with somebody for five years and you've tested over and over and you're negative. Every time you test, you should keep using condoms forever is going to get anybody to use condoms in that five-year-long monogamous-ish relationship. So I would I would make two arguments there. One is that we just gotta we've got we have to sex up condoms. Again, it's it's I think the problem is that foregoing condom use is a way of indicating your commitment and your love with your partner. And I think that we think of condoms as being for those dirty anonymous one night stands. And so I think that's one of the problems. In your in your scenario where we're saying, Hey, listen, we're in a monogamous relationship, let's ditch the condoms, but Let's shake hands and pinky swear that if one of us steps outside the relationship, 
we've got to be able to bring that to each other without this fear of a breakup or some sort of reprisal. To me, in some cases, that can be just as kind of pie-in-the-sky thinking because, you know, when we're dealing with issues of jealousy, there are some relationships where, you know, it may not be safe to tell a partner that you had sex outside the relationship. And mm-hmm. it may not just be that they would break up with you. It may be that they break you. Right. Um, so I, I think that, again, it, the problem is always making blanket statements and trying to say this one-size-fits-all advice for people. Um, <laughs> hey, that's so my I job. Think... That's my job you're talking about right there. <laughs> well, then make it extra, extra large. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, I, you know, again, I think it's all good advice and people are going, you know, people are going to, that's, that's why psychology is such an amazingly tough field because if I were studying molecules, the molecules always behave exactly the way you want them to and people don't. Mm-hmm. And so you really do have to say, what are the best strategies? And so that, you know, that idea of saying, if that, were, if that strategy works for you, that we are going to pinky swear that if one of us commits an act of infidelity, we're going to talk about it and we're going to be safe, and we're going to get retested and move on, then that can work in some relationships. I think in other relationships, it may be that we just, as a culture, need to have a different attitude about condoms and what they imply in a relationship and this idea that, oh, they don't feel good or um, that, you know, we're not in a serious relationship because we use condoms. Dr. Joyce Wan, associate professor at Woodbury University, lead researcher on the study, Is Monogamy a Protective Fallacy, Sexual versus Emotional Exclusivity, and the Implication for Sexual Health Risk? Dr. Swan, where can my listeners find the study and perhaps check it out and read it? Actually, the study is, is currently under submission at the Journal of Sex Research, and so it is, it's not in publication yet. Um, this, is, this is hot off the press's research, so you're the first to know. But it's coming soon to a journal of sex research near you. Dr. Joy Swan, thank you so much for joining us today. Fascinating conversation. Great, Dan. Thanks for having me. Hey, Dan. I've got a um, quick question. I'm a 32-year-old gay man, and I've been in a long-term relationship for about uh, four years in November. And before that, um, all throughout my 20s, I had this kind of ongoing one-night stand kind of relationship with somebody who um, really meant a lot to me, and he uh, moved away, which is why it kind of ended. Um, Anyway, we're both in committed relationships now, and um, he just kind of uh, reconnected with me on Facebook, and he's going to be in town in two weeks, and he wants to meet up, and I'm pretty sure it's to have sex. Pretty sure mean meaning definite. Anyway, I don't know whether or not I should do it. I've, I've never been unfaithful before, but I feel like... If I don't do it, I'm going to regret it because we never really had that. And this sounds so lame, but we never really had like a final goodbye because when he left, it was kind of sudden and we we're never really in a relationship to begin with. Anyway, I don't know what to do. I um, would love your advice. Your call is actually a perfect illustration of the dynamics, I'm not going to call it a problem, the, the, the dynamics that Dr. Joyce Swan was just talking about. You are in a monogamous, committed relationship. Presumably, I'm just going to make an assumption here, you don't use condoms with your partner and along comes this other person. You, feel, you know, Your partner assumes that because you're in a monogamous relationship, it is safe, safe to not use protection and yet you have this other unresolved issue. You have this person, you have this desire to get with this guy one last time and during that meeting, if you were exposed and 
you went home and you didn't disclose the interaction to your partner for fear of being dumped and you continued to not use condoms with your partner and cross your fingers and hope that you know you didn't get infected but you did and then you infected your partner. That's how people get infected, how many people get infected in the context of a long-term monogamous, exclusive, quote-unquote safe because we conflate monogamy with safety – relationship. So your problem is a perfect illustration of what Dr. Joyce Wan is talking about and why Dr. Joyce Wan argues that people should use condoms even in the context of a four-year long committed, presumably monogamous yet perhaps potentially not monogamous relationship like yours. Uh, none of that is relevant to you or your question. You just want to know what I think you should do. Should you fuck this guy for old time's sake? Well, well maybe. I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, no. <clears throat> no, you should not fuck this guy. Listen, you are gay and, and gay is kind of a superpower in situations like this where there's another hot guy. Most gay couples in long-term relationships at some point uh, arrive at a kind of workable agreement about outside sexual contact. If you and your partner have not yet had that conversation about when and whether or if outside sexual contact will ever be allowed, maybe now's the time. If this guy is still into you, maybe he'd be into your partner too. Three ways are something that even straight people do these days by the hundreds of triads of millions. So it's not something that you know you shouldn't be able to raise with your partners. Like a three-way someday would be fun. And oh, by the way, somebody I used to you know be fuck buddies with who's really great in bed and a really nice guy is coming to town. If we ever wanted to have a three-way, he'd be the good. He'd be the right guy. He'd be a good guy. To do it with and somebody I know and trust and like and I'd love for you to meet. You should be able to have that kind of open, honest communication with your partner. If you can't have that kind of open, honest communication with your partner, uh, you really shouldn't fuck this guy. You shouldn't. You really shouldn't. I will tell you a little story from my life. Once upon a time when I was in a relationship, it was committed, it was monogamous, I carried a torch for this guy and I was home and he was home and I, we called each other and we went out for lunch and I was thinking, literally shaking as I walked in to, to see him and have lunch with him uh, at the you know nerve with nervous anticipation about you know our our sexual dynamic sexual connection. It was also strong and I just knew that once we were in the same room together, even though it was a restaurant, we were going to clear the dishes off the table, knock them out of the floor, and just fuck right there on the table. In the cafeteria at Marshall Fields on State Street in Chicago in front of hordes of grandmothers and their children appalled, choking on their frango mints all around us. And what happened was we both sat there going, yeah, no. You, know, you could just tell. It wasn't really acknowledged. We didn't really talk about it. It was just, yeah, no, we've outgrown this. Yeah, no, we're not – You know, that connection has withered and died. That, 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 that zap isn't there. We're not wired to each other in the same way that we used to be. And we stayed friends and it was a nice friendly lunch. So – you might want to go out with this guy to have lunch just to see if it's withered and died and then you don't have to carry a torch for him anymore. You don't have to carry a sexual torch for him. But have it in the cafeteria at Marshall Fields, now Macy's unfortunately, on State Street in Chicago in the middle of the day in front of a lot of grandmothers choking down Franco Mint so that you don't have the option of falling into bed. Don't meet him at his hotel for a drink. Don't go out to dinner when you have nowhere else to be later that night and your partner is not going to be home perhaps because he's out of town. See him at a time and in a place where nothing can happen. And what you may discover is you don't really want anything to happen. You, your feelings for him may have changed. P perhaps in light of the relationship that you're in now, your feelings for him might have changed. But if they haven't, if you see him and that spark is still there and you really got to get with him and you don't want to be a cheating piece of shit, you don't want to be a statistic, you don't want to be one of those guys 
who wound up infecting his partner in the context of a monogamous relationship where they weren't using condoms anymore because monogamy is safety. Go home and talk to your partner about it. You may find that your gay partner is amenable to a fucking scorching hot three-way with your old fuck buddy. Stranger things have happened. I've married 20 years. I've, I'm mostly heterosexual. I've been, um, I've just been totally sexless for about, I don't know, 15 years. And, um, I lacking in affection as I see it. I mean, I know my wife loves me. My question to you is, can you refer me to a therapist or something? I'm not sure what to do. I, um, I don't have social skills. I, I know that I, I, I know where I can go to just screw it in the ass and get a blowjob or something, but I, I don't know what to do about this. Is there any one you know, like uh, counseling down here, or just, I don't know what to do. Let's put it that way. Love most marriage, sexless marriage, guy doesn't know what to do. Caller, you may not want to listen to me for the first two minutes of this response or so uh, because it might be traumatizing. Um, but for everybody else who's listening, uh, remember a few weeks ago when I talked about uh, how we're all sort of down with sex work and sex workers uh, being available to and, and it's the right thing to do for people who are physically disabled. Uh, nobody had a problem with that movie with Helen Hunt about the quadriplegic and her being the sex surrogate which is polite tease for sex worker uh, and everybody thought that was very uplifting and nominated for Oscars and a feel-good story about a sex worker meeting the needs of someone who could not get laid any other way. And I talked about this a few weeks ago, that there are people out there who are not physically disabled, which we can all see and recognize as someone who may need the assistance, the, the attentions of a sex worker to live with some contentment and sexual fulfillment, uh, but people who are socially disabled, who could benefit from and need the same sort of cultural support and sign-off for them getting their sexual needs met in what may be the only way they can, just as a for some people who require sex or it's the only way they can get their sexual needs met is with – by buying it, by paying for it. And this guy sounds like one of those guys to me who he, he says he doesn't have the social skills. A lot of people who I know who've done sex work tell me that a lot of their clients come to them because they just don't have the social skills to get laid in any other way. They don't have the ability to just chat somebody up in a bar or the ability to present themselves in a way on, say, OkCupid okay that makes them seem anything but dangerous or repulsive. And they're actually good and decent guys, many of them, and nice once you get past that that, that barrier, once you get past the awkwardness that their social disability creates in any interaction with another human being, they're guys who are deserving of some sexual release, sexual fulfillment, intimate contact. And this guy, I think, sounds like one of those guys. I, I just read this other story uh, from just a few weeks ago while I was on vacation about uh, a teenager with cerebral palsy whose father arranged for him to see a sex worker and he has this ongoing relationship with the sex worker and the piece was very laudatory and very sex positive. One problem with it, as I mentioned when I tweeted it, they didn't interview the sex worker. They could have interviewed her too and included her narrative as a part of the story and heaped some praise on her. But everybody's down with it. Like, yeah, the right thing to do. Might be the right thing to do in a case like this too for this guy to be able to see sex workers, obtain that intimate contact and not be stigmatized and not be prosecuted because socially disabled people should 
come in for the same degree of, of sympathy and understanding that physically disabled people do. Anyway, caller, you want to find a counselor. You know, Dr. Marty Klein, who's been a guest on the show, recommends going to the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors and Therapists, AASECT.org, and look for a counselor. You say you're in a 16-year sexless marriage. There's a lot of people out there in sexless marriages. I hear from them all the time. They want some magic words, some wand they can wave over their marriage and make it uh, sexual and they want to know what to do. And often the case in a, you know, a, a sexless marriage, the all the advice is bad. You either cheat or divorce. You can't often make somebody who isn't sexual or doesn't want to be sexual with you just want to fuck you by talking to a counselor about it. That a sexless marriage is often a, an unsolvable problem and you just have to accept it for what it is and what it isn't. And do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane if you want to stay married or divorce. doesn't sound like divorce is what you want to do necessarily nor does it sound like it's perhaps what you should do. But if you're going to go get your needs met elsewhere or you want some assistance on your social skills, you obviously have some social skills. You got somebody to marry you. Find a counselor through asect.org, A-A-S-E-C-T.org. Talk it out with that person. And at the end of the day, if you feel that buying it may be the only way to get straight sex, if that's what you want, go buy it. And if you feel that you're gay, you, you mentioned getting fucked in the ass or getting blowjobs. Uh, maybe you're one of those situational homosexuals who you think that uh, you want some sex and you're so desperate that you'll have sex with men. Uh, you can certainly get out there and find that. You can get thee to a bathhouse, go. Uh, but you don't have to have gay sex uh, as, as a last resort, gay men uh, do not exist in this world to scoop up sexually frustrated straight guys and provide them with blowjobs, although some gay men do enjoy doing that. Anyway, go find a counselor. And other listeners, really, as a culture, can we get behind the idea that there are socially disabled people in the world who are who are deserving of our sympathy, who should not have to stew in their own juices and sexual frustration all their lives any more than a physically disabled person should have to and that maybe we should applaud sex workers who meet the needs of both the physically disabled and the socially disabled? Hey, Dan, this is Jake calling from the southeast of the U.S. Um, I have uh, some, I don't know, a question about... Uh, some self-esteem issues. I'm gay. I'm 44 years old. Uh, I'm 6'3", a little bit overweight, not a lot, but a little bit overweight. Personality-wise, I'm crazy independent. I've been out since junior high, but, you know, um, I'm mouthy, I'm frank. I, I have a kind of bitchy, dynamic personality. I'm an actor. I can do anything on stage, but I'm having a hard time with my uh, physical self-esteem. I'm also kind of a gypsy. I've lived all around the world. And it, it all comes down to my physical self-esteem. I uh, I go to a huge extent to uh, um, avoid mirrors. You know, I'll get up in the morning and shower and whatever, make sure my hair doesn't look like shit, and then, but otherwise can't bear to look in the mirror. Physically, you know, I haven't, I haven't had a relationship for a really long time, a lot of it because of the physical self-esteem. Um, I have hired hookers, um, and I'm okay with that. I have no, like, moral problem with that. But I also start to think, you know, maybe I can't have a real relationship, so I just do the hooker thing. Um, so my sexuality is fine. I jerk off a lot. It's all good. But I can't get past the physical 
thing. And I, 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 you know, I guess logically I think, you know, I'm not bad looking. I'm okay looking. But, you know, I, I, I work out enough to not gain a shitload of weight. But um, I'm having a real problem with physical self-esteem. I think it's keeping me away from pursuing anything that may come my way. You know, I avoid, I, now I'm getting to the point where I avoid even going to get a massage because I just think, well, why would I put anybody through that um, to have to touch this? Uh, I don't know where to start. I don't know the first step or the second step or the third step to try and help me get over this. And so I'm seeking some help. You know, harsh words are fine if you have them for me, um, but I do need some care as well. So thanks. Thanks for listening. If you can help me out at all, that'd be great. The harshest thing I want to say to you is I kind of don't believe you're an actor when you say that you don't look in the mirror. I've never known an actor who didn't live for walking past mirrors or, or staring into mirrors. Uh, listen, the massage thing, that, 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 that's some kind of crazy right there that, that, that you've reached this point of your life where you don't even want to be touched by someone whose job it is to touch people of all different shapes and sizes. You're not going to a masseuse who's only ever – touched Adonis's and then inflicting your body on him. Massage therapists are usually much more sort of giving and understanding and accepting of all different body types and very celebratory of all different body types. If there's anyone that you should feel comfortable naked in front of or with their hands on your body, it's that massage therapist, not that escort that you hired. I bet you $100,000 that the massage therapist is less judgmental uh, and less freaked out about slight and human imperfections than the escorts that you've hired and are hiring. How do you get through this with a shrink? Sounds like you need a shrink. I don't think this is something that I can sandblast off you with a bunch of ranty asshole comments, although I'm going to inflict some ranty asshole comments on you right now. You can will yourself to get past this. You're 40 something years old, as am I. I was fat in, in junior high and into high school. I get it. I understand. I have a hard time being naked in front of my husband. In part because look at my husband on Instagram. It's a hard thing. It's a it's a it's a high bar to be naked in front of that man as as a huge part of your sort of like relationship deal. But I do it, and I just will myself through it. I don't think you know, part of my brain is always I'm that fat kid in eighth grade. But I I have to remind myself you are not. You are not. Stop it. Shut up. You are not. Stop it. Shut up. You can do that too. You can have a dialogue with those shitty voices in your head that are tearing away at your physical and sexual sense of self-esteem. You can argue them to a standstill. You just have to will yourself to fucking do it. And I know whereof I speak because I do that every day and you can too. And if you can't right now, if you can't defeat those bullshit voices in your head that are telling you that because although you go to the gym and you're healthy and you're tall, that is such an advantage when you have a few extra pounds on you that you're big, you're tall guy. If you can't get past that, if you can't argue those voices to a standstill on your own, go get a shrink who can give you the weapons that you need and the, the, the language that you need and the perspective that you need to, to win that argument, to win that fight with those inner demons and those shitty voices in your head. And look around. You're mid-40s. Hopefully you're willing to date people who are imperfect as you are imperfect, as we are all imperfect. Look around uh, because in mid-40s, people tend to get a little bit more realistic about uh, – you know, their standards and the guys who are Adonisai, Adonises, Adonisai in their 20s and 30s are dissolving into middle age with the rest of us in the, our mid 40s who were never Adonises. So you have options uh, and like Louis C.K. says, 
that he was not a slim tip sexy boy in his 20s or 30s. But now, now he looks like what men look like at his age. And he has a lot more play with women. And he did before he was rich and famous too at his age, in middle age. Middle age was when he shined uh, as a sex object. And there you are, ready to shine as the sex object you are in middle age. Go for it. Get off your ass and just fucking go for it. And you may need a shrink to help you go for it. Go get one. Hi, Dan. I just had a comment about your show with the two dudes who had the period problem. I just wanted to say I'm a gay girl in a relationship, so, you know, lots of periods. But one thing that you guys didn't talk about is that Sometimes when I tell myself her period, she just doesn't want to have sex. Like, when I'm on my period, I'm a bitch. And I just, you know, I just don't really want to be touched around that. And I think a lot of women are kind of like that. So that's another thought. Hi, Dan. I just listened to episode 355 where you told a guy with an online, quote-unquote, girlfriend that she was a stupid, sadistic asshole. Though I would never excuse the behavior of this girl or anyone else who deceives people in this way, I think motivation is really important here, especially for helping in the healing process for the person who's been violated. Most people who set up these fake profiles are so insecure or ashamed of who they are that they feel they can never find connection if they present their true self. Some are significantly overweight or they feel they're so unattractive that no one could love them. Some have been seriously physically or emotionally abused and have a totally warped sense of self. Some have been in horrible accidents. Some are gay or trans and live in a town that is completely unaccepting of who they are, so they believe that no one could ever accept them for who they are. Mostly, these are sad, lonely people who are so desperate for connection that they lie in order to fill that need. Most likely, she felt she needed to lie to find someone who could give her a chance, and she kept lying because she valued the connection and didn't want to lose it. Again, this does not excuse the behavior. It's not acceptable, and anyone on the receiving end of this has a right to feel violated. However, if you can accept that this person probably didn't go into it trying to manipulate or hurt, but rather because they are insecure about themselves, perhaps that can remove some of the sting and anger that the caller or anyone else who's been violated in this way feels towards the violator. People hurt others when they're in pain themselves and they oftentimes do it unintentionally. It doesn't make the behavior okay. But if we work towards understanding instead of judgment or blame, maybe little by little we can create a world where shit like this doesn't happen. Hey, Dan, it's Rob calling from St. Louis. I just listened to 355, and this gentleman that called in had a question about whether or not he should call Child Protective Services on this girl. And, And here's how this went in my mind. Here's what I heard. Hey, Dan, you know... I fucked this girl, and um, I didn't use protection. And then, like, you know, I went over to her place, and it was kind of messy. And then, like, she told me I love you, and I was like, yeah, whatever. And then I tried to get her to my, go to my place. And, oh, Dan, can I call Child Protective Services? It's like, hey, douchebag. Well, I mean, he's just as fucking goofy as she is. You don't call her. You don't call a guy that has a sex podcast and ask him whether or not you should call Child Protective Services. Number one, you don't continue the relationship with the girl. You tell her flat out, you know, hey, you're batshit crazy. Take care of your kid. Clean up your place. He's just as goofy as she is. I mean, I appreciated uh, the information from the young lady, that Beverly, that you had on. That was good information. 
But that guy's a fucking douchebag, man. He's a fucking douchebag. Oh, and then I fucked her, and I didn't wear protection. And, oh, should I call Child Protective Services on her? Oh, well, I want to fuck her one more time, but then I'm going to call on her. That drives me fucking crazy. If you see something wrong, do something about it. Use your fucking brain. Don't call Dan Savage, you fucking douchebag. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. And as ever, thank you, Magnum listeners, for subscribing to The Savage Lovecast. We appreciate it so much. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Please buy and read my new book, American Savage. And while you're in the bookstore or while you're on Amazon or while you're at Audible.com, please also buy and read my late friend David Rockoff's new book, Love, Dishonor, Marry, Die, Cherish, Perish, a novel by David Rockoff. It's heartbreaking. It is genius. Uh, David is missed. And uh, his last book that he's not around to help promote and publicize really deserves to be read. So please pick up David Rockoff's new book, Love, Dishonor, Marry, Die, Cherish, Perish, a novel by David Rockoff. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Artunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.